Welcome back to the Exit Viola podcast. I'm Adam Cohen alongside Ben Rossi. And Ben, this was a great week for baseball. Ever since really the new year started, this has been an excellent offseason. There were so many moves that happened this week. And But first off, I just want to know how you're doing. I'm doing really well. Yeah, thank you. I mean, despite... I, I know I go into all all our weeks kind of saying this, oh, this sport's gone, that that sport. I mean, despite everything that's going on, though, I think I would argue baseball is really has really kind of taken its part in center stage, though. Though, I mean, there was definitely – I'm definitely kind of disappointed in some of the news, though, this week regarding the Hall of Fame as we were supposed to be celebrating the Hall of Fame inductions this week, but sadly for like the first time since 2013, no new players were inducted, as you guys probably know. Yeah, it was the first time the Baseball Writers Association didn't have an electee since 2013. The first time there's a completely empty ballot, which includes the other committees since 1960. So a surprising turn of events, even though there are a lot of borderline candidates and a lot of candidates with controversy we will get into that later, though. One of the biggest moves that we're going to start into first was the Arenado trade to St. Louis. And first off, I just was completely mind-blown by all of this because the Cardinals are not really a big market team. They they have a decent market, but they never act like it. They already have Goldschmidt on the roster and now trading for someone who's going to cost them about $30 million per year. That's pretty insane for the Cardinals and the Rockies, too, actually pulling that off, trading away their franchise cornerstone and for not an impressive haul in return, too. Definitely. Like, I mean, none of the prospects they did were, like, even their top 10 prospects in their organization. I mean, talk about talk about a total bargain and lopsided trade. And then not to mention the Cardinals are already on a great path in terms of being a competitor. So, like, they're really going for it now. And just to add to that one-two punch now with Arenado and Goldschmidt, I just feel like the – Cardinals need more of that bat in their order that they've kind of been lacking for quite a few years now and getting Aaron Arenado is like the perfect thing especially seeing like how Matt Carpenter somewhat dwindled a little bit especially with the shift I feel like they have a more reliable bat with Arenado and then I mean can't ask for a more reliable glove than, than that guy either so it's like Arenado provides everything I just think it's incredible and the Cardinals like you said they haven't had as big of a payroll but I mean I think they've been willing to to spend but I think I mean finally the Cardinals this has kind of been a while since the Cardinals have been that playoff team that they consistently are so I think it was kind of bound to happen in that way but I wasn't I wasn't so sure about Arenado being traded I thought of anything last season or in the middle of last season would have been more of the time to trade Arenado this kind of came as a shock as I was kind of forgetting about the potential Arenado potential trade blocks it kind of went under the radar until now I agree with you and disagree with you because like he was mentioned in rumors last season especially when he showed the discomfort with being on the Rockies but I think during this era makes the most sense because the Rockies probably got hit hard by the pandemic. They're not the biggest market team themselves. So getting this huge contract off the books probably helps them out, even though there might not be as many fans without Arenado in the ballpark and they decide to trade Trevor Story or let him go next year, then that could also hurt their finances. But I also want to touch upon the prospects, too, that the Rockies received in return. They received Luke and Baker, Cardinals 32 prospect. He's a first baseman. Outfitter John Torres, their number 19 prospect. And it hasn't been complete yet, but they're either going to get Jake Woodford, 
the Cardinals 25 prospect or Angel Rondon, the Cardinals 15 prospect. And then they also threw in left-handed pitcher and reliever Austin Gomber. So as we both have mentioned, the haul they got back was a lot luster and this was more of a salary dump than anything else. Yeah, it was. And I mean, they are getting some money back too with the deal. I think that's still pending. I mean, it, it, I'm hoping it's a good, a good amount though, for sure. Cause because the Rockies, I mean, could really use it. Like you were saying, they've taken definitely one of the bigger hits, it seems like, from this pandemic. So I'm hoping they they do kind of negotiate with that moving forward and get maybe a little more out of that. Or it says Rockies are also set to pay $50 million to the Cardinals, kind of depending on opt-outs and then Arenado – We'll add a one to fifteen million dollar to his extension, and is now eight years, two hundred seventy-five million dollar deal that the Cardinals have locked up with Arenado. So it will be interesting to see how the Cardinals payroll pays out online. It will be also interesting to see if, like, actually the Cardinals are really going to be able to keep Arenado down the line. Is one thing I wonder. Also, keep Paul Goldschmidt down the line. And especially because Paul Goldschmidt isn't the player he once was with the Diamondbacks, and Arenado might be the might not be the exact same player that he was with the Rockies. He does have a course field effect. I think it's about an over 900 OPS at home versus a 790 on the road, and he should still be about a north of 800 OPS type of player. But he will his offensive skills will take a hit, and that's a good point you mentioned too. How gotta wonder if Arenado will stay in the long run because Cardinals are not a big market team, so. That remains to be seen, and also this deal remains to be seen. It's not finalized as of yet, but the Cardinals will be receiving some money from the Rockies just to offset this enormous contract, which is as large as A-Rod's contract, not for more average annual value. So it's a mega deal. Cardinals are on a lot of responsibility, but they're poised at this point to win the NL Central. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's been several years of kind of mediocrity, I would say, for the Cardinals. Like, they just didn't quite – it's like they were good, but they didn't quite have that piece or they did make it through in the playoffs. But, like, it wasn't like their offense was, like, had really any, like, big, big name that was, like, one potential guy to maybe – carry them and I feel like Arenado's great too that Arenado actually gets to play for a team that's more of a competitor and has a little more figured out finally in his career because I mean he's played several seasons he only had a couple seasons with the Rockies where they've really been a competitive team so in some ways some people have argued oh he's like a Mike Trout a little bit in the way that he's almost like "Eh, maybe a little bit of a waste of talent so far in his career because he hasn't gotten much time in like October and that's a very point, good point that you made because the Rockies, when they signed this contract with Aaron Nader, they were thinking you're going to be a three-peat in the playoffs for them, but then they had a fourth-place finish, and then they also had a really poor 2020 campaign, and Aaron Nader wasn't going to go to the playoffs anytime soon if he stayed on the Rockies. So he got Trace a contender, which he wanted, and that's probably one of his grievances that he had the Rockies, that they weren't doing more to try to get themselves back to the playoffs. And the Cardinals, they're always competitive year in, year out. They have a great farm system. They have a great organization. But now with two star bats in order and Goldschmidt Arenado, they still have Paul DeJun too, and maybe it'll get Colton Wong again, and maybe Matt Carpenter will do some damage too. 
So their offense drastically improves. They already had decent pitching, and it's a very weak division as well. So they certainly look like the favorites. Yeah, definitely. And then on the contrary to weak divisions, in terms of strong divisions, NL East, we might have yet another, I mean, another big splash is made in the NL East. I know this team might not, the Phillies might not be looked at as as big of a competitor, but they just made a splash, got the top catching in free agency, valuable piece by re-signing JT Real Muto. And he's, he signed the record a record deal with among catchers five years, $115.5 million surpasses Joe Mauer's eight year, $184 million. So it's going to be, that's going to be an interesting deal for the Phillies. And I just wonder how that will affect some of their spending down the line too, with Bryce Harper and everyone like that. What do you think of the Phillies going for JT Realmuto? Were you surprised that he ended up again with the Phillies? Did you think one of the other teams would get him like the blue jays or if you asked me where jt romuto would have ended up at the beginning of the offseason i probably would not have predicted the phillies even though they had a good relationship just because i thought romuto would have commanded a higher contract and at one point there were reports saying that he wanted 200 million dollars and it also should be noted that the record that he broke was not in terms of value it was in terms of average annual value so per year he'll be making more money than joe mauer did it's very close You'll be able to be making $23.1 million on average, and Maurer made $23 million. So Romito's a great catcher. The Phillies obviously need his bat in the order. They also re-signed Didi Gregorius to a two-year $28 million deal today. So they're bringing back the reinforcements, but I don't know if this is enough to beat the East because still the Braves, who won the division last year, the Mets have had a tremendous offseason, and they could even be NL East frontrunners. Then you have the Nationals, who are shoring up their team making a couple of trades and they got Josh Bell and they also acquired Kyle Schwerber. And then even the Marlins made the playoffs last year too. So this is a loaded division. I still think the Phillies are a fourth place team at this point, but it remains to be seen. And maybe that they'll rely a lot of Alec Bohm and some of their other players to be even better in 2021. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see which players kind of contribute a little more, maybe break out a little more if like they're pitching, they figure something out more with their rotation. Cause that seems to kind of be one of their weaker points with like the pitching. So I'm, I'll be interested to see how the Phillies do that. And then speaking of pitching Trevor Bauer, he was just offered. Th- so we think three to f- three to four year contract by the Mets, but it's under the $16 million average annual value record for starters so will that really be enough i mean the mets have already made their fair share and moves and in free agency and and the angels are are kind of out of the out of the competition it looks like for it which i mean i mean i'm still surprised but at the same time it's not like the angels have had their success with landing these free agent pitchers mets will not be involved in the bidding war exactly. And then, I mean, the Blue Jays, they're still a potential suitor, Dodgers or Giants. Oh, he's a sleeper team potential with Trevor Bauer. Where do you see Trevor Bauer landing now? I really haven't been able to predict yet with Trevor Bauer. I thought I could I thought I thought could last month, but now it's becoming a little less predictable, it seems. Yeah, I really thought that he would be a Met or a Blue Jay, but the Blue Jays are, even though they have $61 million to spend, they are not the biggest 
franchise in terms of payroll spending. So if they had a Bauer, that would be, I think, a franchise record for them. And then the Angels, they have had their run-ins with long-term contracts in the past. And for the most part, it hasn't worked out. It should be fine with Mike Trout. But there are other ones like Pujols or CJ Wilson or Josh Hamilton. It hasn't been very pretty. So they're probably avoiding Bauer for that reason. But they desperately need a starting pitcher. So I would love to see a team like the Giants swoop in and get Trevor Bauer because they have so much payroll coming off next year. I'm probably going to decline a lot of the options on their older players. But at the end of the day, I think the Mets are the most serious team to really go after and even pay Bauer around $150 million or so. And that could be what uh, what it takes to sign him at this point. Yep. And then speaking of speaking of other pitchers signing and going after for the bigger money, I mean, Marcus, Sim, Marcus Simeon, unfortunately, I mean, he's been a staple to the Oakland Athletics, as I've seen all these years. We've enjoyed having him as our shortstop. But, of course, his – I mean, his stats were a little bit more underwhelming last year, but I still thought he was like the core of the team. I would have loved to see our team put a little more effort than what I was reading that they did from Mark from Marcus Simeon, only like giving him like a smaller, close to like ten million dollar offer, nothing near what the Blue Jays gave him. But they signed him to the one year, eighteen million dollar deal so once again the blue jays just look scare even scarier now one through nine because i think marcus Simeon will have a big bounce back year and then another shortstop dd gregorius signed two-year 28 million dollar deal with none other than the phillies again re-signed there so they're maybe taking a little bit of a risk with him so what do you think about these couple shortstop moves? And not to mention Angelton Simmons, another big signing this week. One year, $10.5 million with the Twins. So like they're starting to take the shortstops off the board. I'm liking how I'm seeing all these big shortstop names sign at that position. What do you think about all these shortstops who have been signed off the board here? Yeah, and there are even a couple more that signed this week as well as Cesar Hernandez re-signed with the Indians and also Freddie Galvis is going to the Orioles. So it's been a huge week for shortstops. And I really don't know whatever shortstops are left on the board. Perhaps I should do a little bit more research on that. But pretty much all the big names are there. And I was surprised too by how much Semyon got by the Blue Jays. And this is another reason why I don't think they can afford Bauer because they have Hyunjin Ryu, they have Springer, they have Semyon. They're eating up a lot of money in their 2021 payroll, but I think Simeon will be worth it. I don't think he'll be back to his 2019 escapade where he was an all-star player and also was third in MVP voting, but he should be a very good bat for them. And he'll also be moving to second base, which he hasn't been playing since the White Sox because Bichette has firmly entrenched himself in the shortstop position. Yeah, and he's develop- he just developed so much in that position. Like he was initially made so many Buzzlinga League and errors in it. And then when Ron Washington came into the A's, he turned him around. I mean, he has quite a story with the A's and he's and he became one of the most productive he's become one of the most productive fielding shortstops in the game. And like I remember I saw him play when in college at Cal. And I think I remember seeing him play a little bit of second base there too. So <laughs> it's so I mean I definitely go way back with like the Simeon memories. That's the other thing. He's a local guy, but he's not leaving the Bay Area. And then speaking of more Blue Jays moves, Blue Jays trade for Steven Matz. I mean, he had kind of a pretty high 9.68 ERA with the Mets last year and 30.2 innings pitched, negative 0.6 
war. And then he, his so stats have kind of been underwhelming, but it looks like the Blue Jays might be adding another arm they trust for their rotations. What do you have, have any thoughts about that move to get to get Steven Matz? Do you think that's a good move maybe for like the closer bomb of their rotation, longer inning bullpen guy? So here's what, how I feel about the Blue Jays. They have Hinjin Ryu at the top, Nate Pearson to right, yeah. be able to break out as well. But then all their other guys are flyers, and they have a ceiling, but they're probably going to be closer to the floor. So that includes Tanner Rourke, who was really bad last year. Then who's Ross Stripling, who had a pretty bad tenure at the Blue Jays in his first year. That also includes Robbie Ray, who is a very frustrating pitcher because he has a lot of strikeouts, but also wants a ton of batters. And now... They also have Steven Matz, who is a very talented lefty pitcher, but as we saw in this 2020 season, struggled mightily. So they have a lot of guys, and maybe if one or two of them works out, but they're investing a lot of money, a lot of prospects into a few players that they're hoping can break out when they haven't shown their ceiling too much in a little while. So it's it's certainly risky. It's a very risky move for the Blue Jays, and they didn't give it too much. I like this move for the Mets as well because – they acquire a couple of low-end prospects, such as uh, Josh Winchowski, and they also got Yenzi Diaz. So those guys can come up. At least Yenzi Diaz can come into majors maybe recently, but they also acquired Sean Ray Foley, who can be a reliever and perhaps a starter for the Mets too. So they wanted to acquire a couple of guys who'd be between AAA and the majors, and that's what they did. They added some more minor league depth, which they drastically need after their trade of the Indians. So... It's a good move for both sides. I think the Blue Jays took more of a risk, though, and the Mets had a lot of starting depth, so it was a good reason why to trade Mats. But we'll have to see if one of these options for the Blue Jays can work out for them. Yeah, I think it's good how the Blue Jays are balancing it out with, like their, as you were saying, their future depth and some of their and and kind of having some flexible options there, and then. In terms of another New York team making moves, Yankees putting their trust in some pitchers with injury histories this offseason. And this week, they traded for Jamison Talon, who missed 20, 20 season because of a second Tommy John surgery. And um, so far in his career, 3.67 ERA, 9.5 featured war, and 466 career innings pitch. They sent Miguel Yaher. And to infield, they sent several players over to I think it was the Pirate right here. <laughs> Looking at that deal, sorry, I didn't really too closely at that, but yeah, no problem. I, I actually think his name is pronounced uh, Heinsen to Leon, so very uh, difficult name to pronounce. But he's this guy's a fighter. He's coming off his second Tommy John surgery. Also got through testicular cancer. And whenever he's pitched in the majors when he's been healthy, he's been excellent. 3.7 career ERA, as you mentioned, and just four major league seasons. So he's very good. Um, definitely a risk for the Yankees, though, because he is coming off Tommy John's surgery. They also have Corey Kluber, who didn't pitch a lot, or really at all, in 2020. And then you have Darren O'Day, who also did not pitch a lot, although he did pitch in the playoffs. So they're bringing a bunch of guys who have injury histories or did not really pitch at all in 2020. And this almost reminds me of the Blue Jays a little bit, except that Talion, O'Day, and Kluber have much higher ceilings than some of the Blue Jays pitchers. And then you look at the prospect hall, the Pirates got in return, which is pretty impressive when you look at it. 
I first thought that just with all these low-level guys, it wasn't too much. But then these guys have upside. Another player besides Miguel Yanhura is Roancy Contreras, who's Yankees' number eight prospect ever 2019 season. That's a 3.25 ERA in three minor league seasons. They have infielder Mikhail Escoto, who had a 981 OPS in rookie ball in 2019. They got Kane Smith, who had 11 homers and 16 stolen bases and 124 games in A ball in 2019. So the Pirates got a lot of low-level prospects, but they're all very talented. So this is a really nice deal for the Pirates. And I, I think they kind of won this trade too because they have a lot more upside and Tillion is certainly a flyer. Yeah, definitely. It's good with the Pirates. I mean, a team that has a lot of young potential in their future. They're really building up that future there. So I think, yeah, I think the, the Pirates were, I mean, maybe potentially even somewhat winners in this deal. If you ask me, I, I, I mean, no offense to your Yankees, but I kind of think that. And then, I mean, another big trade, but then another big trade the Yankees made, sending relief pitcher Adam Aldovino and their tw number 24 prospect Frank Herman for cash and a player to be named later to the Red Sox. So Red Sox are now making moves. Red Sox cover $7.15 million in 2021 and the $3 million signing bonus that's due by the end of the year. Yankees will cover 850k so i mean the yankees obviously they have a lot of pieces they had a lot of pieces to their bullpen a lot of great pieces to be proud of but now adam odovino is moving on do you think that was a good move for the yankees in terms of their bullpen in order to maybe look at other pieces so i think it's a good move depending on who they sign because odovino was projected to bounce back a little bit and he was their fourth best reliever now you're placing with Darren O'Day, who's good, who's also tough against righties like Ottavino was and still is. So that's a nice compensation, but they need another reliever. And I kind of wish the Yankees had done this earlier on because think about it. They didn't they traded Ottavino right away. They would have more money in the books. They could maybe could have gone on to more reliable starting pitchers like Tanaka or an Oda Rizzi. Instead, Cashman want to save a few bucks here and there, which is fair because they want to be under the luxury tax threshold. And he kind of almost said that he wanted a two-for-one into Leon and Kluber instead of Tanaka. So the Yankees are had some weird moves this offseason. This was certainly the strangest. It's the first trade to the Red Sox since 2014 when they acquired Stephen Drew. And it, it's certainly a salary dump. The Red Sox had a good reliever. I don't know why they're overpaying for someone when they're the fourth-best team in the AL East. But, hey, if they just want to load on someone, then by all means, the Red Sox can take away Ottavino. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Red Sox could use that help with their bullpen too. So it, this move can't this move can't exactly hurt them if you ask me with what they're trading for. And then and then Adam Wainwright is still going to be added. He's another big move. The veteran Wainwright signed a one-year, eight million dollar deal again with the Cardinals, and then their veteran Godier Molina is still expected. To sign with the Cardinals too so Cardinals besides bringing Aaron they still have a couple of like their veterans with the team and then it would be nice yeah or you can go ahead yeah yeah it'd be nice if they re-signed Yadier Molina too he's expected to sign with them and could also bring back Colin Juan who's been the organization for a while and they would certainly be a playoff team and just another signing that happened this weekend. Tanaka signed a $17.2 million contract over two years with the Rakuten Golden Eagles. So 
He's no longer a Yankee, but he did mention that he had unfinished business in the majors. So we should expect him back in the MLB at some point. And there's a lot more transactions that happened this week. The Indians got Eddie Rosario, Brad Hansen, the Nationals. There are a lot. So feel free to go to MLB transactions if you want to see the full list. But moving on, it's time to talk about the Hall of Fame. And I don't know why. It's, I don't know if it's just me. But I did not realize that the Golden Days Committee and the early baseball era committees, other committees besides the Baseball Writers Association, besides the Baseball Writers Association, didn't vote this year. And it's because of the pandemic, but couldn't have done a Zoom call or met up virtually somehow and still decided. It seems very weird that they just decided, oh, yeah, we're not going to vote this year. Yeah, no, I didn't get that either. That, like, because, I mean, I know the MLB kind of had a lack of winter meetings this year, but even the winter meetings, they still managed to do via Zoom calls. So I was a little bit confused about seeing MLB Network and them talk about that committee not meeting either. I guess we must have some sort of formal standard. Maybe they're, I don't know, maybe certain more traditionalists with, like, meeting in person. But at the same, but at the same time, I mean, with the fact that they kind of, induct players who are kind of several years eligibility that they think of it doesn't seem like it's like an annual induction thing i feel like i feel like this isn't as big of a deal that they met in person so that could have been the thing they could have had some of that flexibility this year well meanwhile the writers always have to do it each year because the writers are always voting to induct people each year that's that's my only thought on it (laughs) Well, I think the Hall of Fame has a rotation. Like they go between Veterans Committee. I think there's a Negro League Committee. I think they're in the nails of the early days. And what, what's the other committee called? Golden Days Committee. So those two were projected to go this year. And again, this seems, I'm sure they had a valid reason. And I'm sure the pandemic is a reason enough to not vote this year. But it kind of seems lazy. It seems lazy they wouldn't vote in anyone. And they left it entirely up to the Baseball Writers Association, who had a very difficult class to vote in because you have Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, and Roger Clemens in the top, and Clemens and Bonds have taken PEDs, and Hall of Fame has not had an appropriate stance or an official stance on what they do with PEDs, so they're not getting in this year. And then Schilling has had his own fair share of controversial tweets, including potentially Islamophobic and transphobic tweets. So he missed out on the Hall of Fame by 16 votes, got 71.1%. And yeah, without these committees, there's just no one. First empty ballot once again since 1960. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty disappointing. I mean, I was expecting this year would probably be the year, if any year, that they would have this empty ballot. I definitely, it wasn't totally surprising seeing how the writers have voted in past year. But no, seeing some of the gains, I was expecting to see more gains with some of the players, especially I thought that this year Kurt Schilling would finally break the threshold and that the Raiders would finally realize, especially with the limited class this year, this would be his year to break that that 75% threshold. Because voting, I mean, a lot of analysts believe this too. It should be based on a player's record, playing ability, I mean, integrity. I know that he, he lacks like the integrity, sportsmanship, and character. But I think going if you look at the baseball history, and a lot of these players weren't perfect and lacked that. There were some players that were, I mean, unexemplary in character just as much as chilling, but like in different ways. Just look at the history of the game with Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, even Ted Williams had a fair share of their character issues if you look deep into it. 
that we weren't that were like not really exemplary and are especially not model for this time so i mean it, so i don't really i i still don't get why character had to become such an issue with this here i just don't i don't think it would have drastically made the hall of fame look terrible inducting him because they've inducted guys before who weren't the best who weren't the best and who weren't model people so it's so I still, it's still a little bit beyond me why, why so many writers voted against him. I, I, I really, I really don't, I really don't think they should have made it this hard for him to get in. But then again, I mean, he doesn't even want to be inducted in again now because he wants to be removed from the ballot. So it's like, okay, well, I guess this is a win for you, Kirk Chilling. What? <laughs> well, he wants to be removed from the ballot and be put on the Veterans Committee or the Veterans Committee era ballot because. That way, the you know, players are voting him in. And if the players think that he's a Hall of Famer, then he'll be happy with it. He just doesn't think the Baseball Writers Association are that great and really took a huge jab at the writers. So I doubt that he's going in next year. But you make a good point in how MLB has long had this character clause. And I do want to read it out for you guys because it's important. It directly says, Voting shall be based upon the player's record, playing ability, integrity, sportsmanship, character, and contributions to the teams on which the player played. And this doesn't say anything about off-the-field character, because on the field, Schilling was a great teammate. There was no one who has said too many bad things about him as a teammate, and he also won three World Series as well, one at the Diamondbacks and two at the Red Sox. So I feel like they're, if you just look solely at this clause, they're stretching it a little bit. And also going to your point about how this is unprecedented, really, of how they're really trying to look at this character clause. Well, I think we kind of live in an era where we're trying to correct history's fallacies as a society, and we're also we're thinking about social justice more than really they ever thought, or they're thinking about it in a more micro scale as well. And that probably applies to Schilling's case as well. Yeah, and I mean, I can't blame people for wanting to look at that. It's good that we're bringing the awareness and bringing the recognition with that, and not and not and not giving him maybe that sort of unwanted attention there but so so i i kind of it's so it's it's kind of you kind of bring up a good point there and it's kind of and i do understand i mean baseball especially is, is a game that's working on like their image and reputation so they think that could be a little bit impactful of that but then but then i mean that could be limiting for their future. And then speaking of speaking of controversy, I mean, there was a lot of other of that same character that was on the ballot that potentially could have had a very different fate, just like Kurt Schilling. I mean, it wasn't sure ballot guys, but like you look at Gary Sheffield, he had some his fair share of character issues. Jeff Kent, another guy in the ballot who had a fair share of that. I just feel like I hope baseball maybe doesn't go like keep going too far down that rabbit hole. I mean, I know with Kurt Schilling, it's a little bit of an exceptional case because that his actually relates to a little more political and, and, and stuff related to speech, which there's a whole debate there about like what kind of, whether his speech was like exactly warranted in terms of the free speech, but it'll just be interesting to see down the line if like the MLB continues to increase this character, even when it comes to things like guys who weren't great with management, guys who weren't great team players. And I think that's already starts to be done with MLB. You look at Josh Hader as well, who said like these said like the N word in tweets when he was 16. And then 
eight years later, it comes out, it resurfaces, and they bring him to sensitivity training. All his teammates say that, hey, he's not a bad guy. And you got to hope that was just a phase. And, you know, it's still unfortunate that he put that. But it, he's all, he was also a dumb 16-year-old at the time. So it is an interesting question that we have to go into. What is free speech and how, how much should we go into this? And should people apologize for things they said so long ago or and all that? And another case of this character clause goes to Omar Vizquel. He had a domestic violence case That's right, a couple yeah. years back. And he was the only one, only player that was returning the ballot who had a negative percentage this year. And he was starting to climb up. A lot of people still think he'll make the Hall of Fame. He has numbers very comparable to Ozzie Smith, who is a defensively laden shortstop. So this could hurt his case too. And this could be one of the reasons why, if he is kept in the Hall of Fame, that could be the reason. Yep, I think it's definitely the reason. I mean, if Kurt, Ch- I mean, if Kurt Schilling's not getting in for his reasons, I kind of don't see Omar Vizquel having any better of a chance. Seeing how his how his chances took a hit this year, and yeah, like you were saying, his. I mean, he, I think he's done enough to get in, given that, like you were saying, his stats are similar to Ozzy Smith, and some his hit, hitting stats are similar to that of Ozzy Smith in some ways, a little bit better. And Ozzy Smith got inducted. In, 2002 so I so I but I don't think I just I just feel like with Omar Omar Vizquel after this incident we'll see how this incident plays out and how it goes down through legal proceedings in this future so that might depend a lot on it but that Omar Vizquel's case certainly wasn't one of the ones that was helped and I'm kind of starting to believe less that he'll be in the hall of fame too we also have to consider if the veterans committee will then bring in someone like Schilling and potentially Vizquel as well, because it's just the players who have played alongside them and they could also have a different viewpoint than the baseball hall or the baseball writers association. So it will be interesting to see. It'll also be interesting to see if Schilling will be on the ballot next year. His request might be denied by the hall of fame. The BBWAA is asking the hall of fame to deny this request, which also feels very unprecedented because again, not a lot of players have asked to be taken off. So, We'll have to see how that goes, and I'm sure that we'll see an answer sooner than later. However, we should look at the other players that were on the ballot. So there were a bunch of players who jumped by over 10 percentage points on the ballot. Scott Rowan jumped to 52.9%. Todd Helton jumped to 44.9%. Billy Wagner jumped to 46.4%. Andrew Jones jumped from to 33.9%. And Gary Sheffield jumped to 40.6%. And it should be noted that Whenever a Hall of Famer or potential Hall of Famer reaches 50%, they almost always in the Hall of Fame. The rare exception was Gil Hodges. So this is great for all these players that I just mentioned. And even next year, the ballot's kind of weak. It has a lot of PED-laden players. So once again, this could be a seismic rise. And potentially down the road, all these players could make it in. I really think... Your optimism is definitely warranted and stuff, especially given the fact that you look at where Larry Walker was at this point of a few years ago, and then he gets in last year in his final year of eligibility. I think the odds are definitely with them to get in. The ones who I especially think have the best chance of getting are the ones who saw the good rises this year. So Scott Rowland and Todd Helton, I think, and I think both of their careers are definitely deserving of it. Like Scott Rowland, especially, I mean, or well, first Todd Helton, especially. I mean, with a three, I think he's almost a no brainer with his 316 batting average, 2,520 hits, 550 plus doubles, and 350 plus home runs. It, I, I was looking at like 
Baseball Archives has actually no other players achieved all those stats together other than the great Stan Muse Stan Musial. So it's so this is some kind of resume for the ages. And I think I mean I think MLB needs to get over a lot of that Coors the Cole Coors field mindset with like, oh, he played at Coors Field, so he was a great hitter. I mean Helton did, did good stuff in the field too, and it wasn't just like him hitting home runs either. So I got it. So Helton does, I think, deserves definitely the credit. And he kind of revolutionized. It's also and the Hall of Fame is not just about stats; it's about how a guy revolutionizes the game in one way or another. I mean, Helton really revolutionized the game in the Rocky Mountains too, and put the Rockies more on the map. And then, and then in terms of. And I think I think it's mostly positional scarcity that's been keeping Helton off has been a big issue. But then speaking of that positional scarcity, that should give Roland an advantage. I mean, there's certainly something that sh- people should be excited about. I wasn't so sure initially about Roland, but then looking more deeply in his stats, and he is top ten among third basemen in the Jaws rating, which is the rating of which is the rating that kind of measures positional scarcity with the Hall of Fame. And I know he was below average with bill james hall of fame ranking but his ops and ops plus are are very are very are actually very similar actually vastly better than that of one of the greatest fielding third basemen of all time brooks robinson so i think scott Rollins' gold gloves his all-star appearances are actually more than enough to get in when you really look deeply at the stats and compare it to other third basemen who have been inducted. Of course, we now have a lot of other good third basemen playing the game now, so that could always change years, years down the line if this if this current trend of good third basemen keeps up. But for now, I'm like I'm really liking Scott Rowland's chances. Yeah, I like Rowland's chances and Helton's chances because when you look at the numbers with Rowland, he's never the type of player who had like this amazing season, never won an MVP, didn't have an insane, insane year at third base, but he regularly put up 20 to 30 homers at third base and won a gold glove. And when you do that on a year-to-year basis and you're consistent with it, there should be a place in the Hall of Fame for you. And then with Todd Helton, I think the cores of field effect should be taken into consideration, but if they are a good enough player away from Coors Field, which Todd Helton was, then I feel like it should be negligible because he was an excellent player, whether he was at Coors Field or not. So he should be in the Hall of Fame. And then another case that I really like is Billy Wagner, because if you take away those old-time relievers like Hoyt Wilhelm and Bruce Gossage, the three best relievers should be Rivera, Hoffman, and Wagner in that order. You could even add Lee Smith, who's in the Hall of Fame too. So Wagner deserves to be in that company as well. And I hope he gets in because relievers are deserving the Hall of Fame. It's part of the game. And he was certainly good enough to be in the Hall of Fame and has the best K per nine record out of all those relievers inducted in. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, best K through nine for, for, for like relievers with 800 plus innings, also best opponent's batting average for that. Obviously the opponent's batting average comes because he pitched less innings, which is obviously his biggest hurdle that's keeping him from getting in. But he's one of the, he is one of the, Top relievers, and the reason why I feel like with less innings, you got to cut the relievers a little bit of slack with that. I don't know if he's, if I'd say he's the best of the three closers. Like, I don't know if he's quite, I mean, I don't, I actually would put Eckers, Dennis Eckersley above him with the, as far as, as far as closers go, along with, along with Rivera and Hoffman, but he's definitely in that mix too. So he's, 
more than deserving of it. One player I'm a little more borderline, though, a teammate of Wagner's, Andrew Jones, because he's one of those players, great Hall of Fame career for several years, but then just didn't seem to get together with all the other teams he played for following following after he left the Braves in 2007. So I don't know it was quite up to that but then he did have a lot of he did have a lot of pop in his swing so that's something else you want to consider besides his great fielding in center field he had a lot of pop in his swing so is that is that enough to get recognized for the hall of fame that one i'm a little i'm a little borderline on he also is a very low average and there still are some fanatics in the hall of fame and some writers for the hall of fame who look at batting average pretty well. And I know Jones is pretty low. I think it's around the two mark. So yeah, that will also be taken into consideration. He's, I'm not as high on him as maybe the other hall of famers or potential hall of famers that we mentioned. And just going back to the reliever aspect of this with Billy Wagner. I mean, I think again, with Eckersley and Wilhelm and Gossage, they were all like these, still like these lawn relievers still. But if you're talking about like the one inning reliever, then it should go Rivera, Hoffman, Wagner. And there's a couple more relievers on the 2022 ballot. And that includes Jonathan Papelbon and Joe Nathan, who both have amassed, I believe, around 350 saves plus. And Papelbon had a couple hundred less innings than some of the other relievers in the Hall of Fame. But those guys were very dominant. And those guys had a bunch of good years too. So they should get good consideration. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, and the years they were good. I mean, Papelbon was in, was also an instrumental part of the Red Sox, a couple of the Red Sox World Series teams. So he, so he, I think Papelbon should definitely get some consideration. Nathan, I mean, it was it was just it's a hard case with Nathan looking at how he was initially, but then his career was a little plagued was plagued by injuries and inconsistencies. Later is all I is all I really remember from Joe Nathan. So. I think they might get a consideration. I don't know if they're if they're quite. It might take them a, quite a few years down the line, though, to get. And I, I don't see them as first ballot Hall of Famers exactly. They're not names that jump out to me personally the same way a name like Wagner would. Yeah, I, I highly doubt they would get in first ballot. There are no Rivera and even Wagner is taking a sweet time to get in the Hall of Fame because relievers still have trouble getting in, but. Even Nathan, even though he had a late start to really settling himself down the majors, once he started becoming closing full-time in 2004, he was really racking up about 30 to 40 saves nearly every year until 2014. So he did have a nice run, and the Hall of Fame lights it when you have a nice run of like eight or so years, and that can certainly help their case. Other oh, yeah, players- it's interesting you say he started out there. I actually thought he I actually thought he started out a little better earlier and then the injuries plagued him later in his career. I guess he did have it's interesting. I guess he did have a little rough stretch early too. I didn't think about that, but yeah, that stretch he had might be enough. Yeah, it'll be an interesting case. He probably won't even get in the first five years, but looking to the other players on the 2022 ballot, there's also A-Rod and David Ortiz. Mark DeShera, Jimmy Rollins, and Ryan Howard, all incredible players. And I think with A-Rod and Ortiz, even though they have PEDs, they'll make a very interesting case. I think Howard and Rollins probably won't last too long in the ballot because their peak wasn't for too long. And Rollins really had – he was a good player, of course, had a lot of hits, but he had that MVP year and was was pretty good besides that. Hall of the very good. Then you have DeShera, who's a very intriguing case, but – 
he'll be one of the few players without 2,000 hits if he makes the Hall of Fame, and that's something they do take in consideration. So do you think out of the, these newcomers in the 2022 bout, will any of them be Hall of Famers eventually? I think Ortiz is even – I would even make the case for Ortiz being a first ballot Hall of Famer, go as bold as that. I know – I think the only thing that's really stopping him is that potential PEDs talk that people were saying with the positive tests there. I just feel that there wasn't much – I mean, there wasn't – that was only one test and there wasn't like as much – doesn't seem like there was as much definite evidence that we've heard about like there was for a lot of these other PED users like Bonds, A-Rod, and Clemens, the ones who are actually – being kept out. I mean, just looking at David Ortiz, a nine, uh, an OPS over 900 in his career, still a solid batting average. Even though, the, even though we know him more for as a home run hitter, I, I think he's. I, I really like his case for the Hall of Fame. I mean, I know his WAR wasn't nearly as high as other Hall of Famers that you see, but but looking, but like or, Ortiz's swing is just so memorable and everything everything about him and how he just ignited communities. I mean, I think a lot of that's going to be very attractive to a lot of writers. Now I, I would, I would actually put him in on first ballot to share those stats compared to Ortiz are not given. I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if to share would be like a first case, but like you said, the 2000 plus hits could be just something to take into consideration. I do wonder though, if part of that success did have to, do with him playing for such a star-studded Yankees lineup for a good amount of his career? Well, I think the Yankees in the 2010s certainly had some good teams, of course, but I think his best years the Yankees given his first two years, and then he was belittled by injuries. I think the career before the Yankees is more of a true measurement. He still had a great run of success. And as for Ortiz, I think he'll also get 50-plus percent in the first bout. I don't think he's going to get in his first year, but you're right. He did Big things for Boston, both on the field and off the field, really united the community after the whole Boston Marathon bombing. And he really revolutionized the DH position, too. When you think about the greatest DHs of all time, it's Ortiz and Edgar Martinez. That's it. You don't really consider anyone else. So Hideki, not, Hideki, really, not your guy Hideki Matsui. <laughs> I do like Matsui as well. Not I mean, also, Thomas. <laughs> I guess Frank Thomas. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. But I guess like I'm so used to like, Ortiz being mentioned. So maybe it's my East Coast mindset here. But yes, Thomas deserves to be mentioned and Matsui deserves to be mentioned a little bit. But when you look at like the one and two, or I guess one, two, and three, it's Ortiz, Mar uh, in no particular order, Ortiz, Martinez, and Thomas. So they are all great players. And I think Ortiz might have a better case than most. He's kind of like the Andy Pettit of PEDs, too, where it's almost like it's forgiven. That's kind of how the way they treat him. For that reason alone, he should probably be in the Hall of Fame and probably will get in. Yeah, it should be an interesting vote next year. See if, like, next year they'll they'll actually have a Hall of Fame. I'm starting to wonder when next time we'll have one is. But I'm optimistic that next year we will have some guys get in. I kind of find it a little hard to believe. I'm not saying it can't happen. I mean, a year of unpredictability, but I kind of find it hard to believe the writers will keep everyone out of the Hall of Fame for two consecutive years. That would seem a little unprecedented to me. And then now, so moving on to wrap up the show, we're going to, we ranked our top, our top right fielders. Last week we did last week, Henry and I broke down the top center fielders this week. And Adam and I are, are breaking on top 10, right, right fielder or right fielders. So, and Adam, it looks like 
we have we have pretty close agreement there. I mean, there were a few little mix-ups with our top ones. I mean, we both had we both had we both kind of could argue that Mookie Betts is an obvious choice as like the as like the top one. Just like Al has five tools and what he's done, he's cementing himself as one of the great players in the game and. The playoffs really spoke to that. But then number two, you have Ronald Acuna. I actually have Juan Soto at number two. That's that's an interesting mix. And then Michael, we both have Michael Conforto ranked really high. We both agree that he's a very underrated right fielder with what with what he's done. Then Bryce Harper, we have ranked at different parts. Do you want to explain some of your rankings? Yeah, so I guess we can start from the top and we both have Mookie Betts at the top and whether it's seniority or being the best defensive right fielder in baseball or winning the MVP just a couple of years ago and having a great postseason, he deserves to be at the top. And then Acuna and Soto is going to be the debate that we are going to have for years, which is so exciting because they're such young players and they're great. I just think with Acuna, even though he is strikeout prone and his defensive capability is not that great. It's still a little bit above average, a little bit better than Soto. He has speed, he has power, and he's also really improved his walk rate in 2020, and that should carry over next season as well. So that's why I have him a little bit above Soto, but don't get me wrong. Juan Soto's number three for me. He's going to be a 30 homer player, guy with 400 plus batting average, so 400 plus on base percentage, excuse me, for years to come. Just came off a batting title, so it's very hard to change up two and three for me. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more with you there. I just had Soto above because Soto, I just think provides a little, maybe it's provided provide a little more excitement. I mean, both of them provide excitement in their own way, like Acuna, just his energy he brings is exciting. Soto, I like because I because he can just he's just shown so much great capability of hitting the ball to various fields. So we so but like yeah, that's that can be a debate that can go. On and on. It's great to have that excitement in the NL East of both of those players. Oh yeah, and speaking of the NL East, you have two other a couple. The, uh, the next two on our list are from the NL East. Michael Conforto. I actually put him above Bryce Harper. I mean, he's been underrated. He's been a lot of fun to watch for the match. One of the, I think one of the more underrated right fielders in the game, as you were as you were saying, like last season, he had nine home runs, nine twenty seven OPS, and he, and he, he he's a good everyday staple for the Mets. I put him above Bryce Harper because he actually his feeling stats were a little bit more positive, I thought, than Bryce Harper's. I still think parts of Bryce Harper are a little bit overrated in that sense, even though he has kind of proven himself well the last couple seasons. And then number six, we both agree that yeah, Mike Yastrzemski. Speaking of over underrated, another one who just broke out last year with the San Francisco Giants, Mike Yastrzemski was something impressive and he should be he should the grandson of Carl Yastrzemski who knows he could maybe start cementing himself as a legend like his grandfather down the line I mean 31 home runs in the last couple seasons 890 OPS where have, where have you kind of thought I mean there were a couple differences in your rankings but like yeah those were my next three Conforto, Harper, Yastrzemski. Yeah we actually Really flip-flops in the next four rankings even. I had uh, Harper and Conforto. You had that switched for four and five. And I also, after that, my six was Aaron Judge. And then Yastrzemski was seven. And you had that switched as well. I just feel like Harper's ceiling and is still very high. And even though he'll never be 2015 Bryce Harper again, 
you still be 30 plus homers, 400 on base percentage, and really about a four war player. So I think that's pretty high for him. And Conforto, he's very consistent as well. He's a better fielder, I'll admit that, but I don't think he'll always be a four war player. And I think for that reason, he's tad below. I did rank him above Aaron Judge and Yastrzemski, though, just because he's an everyday player and he's proven himself to be a very underrated fielder and underrated right fielder as well. And then Aaron Judge, he's number six for me because even 120-so games, he'll hit 30 home runs, have an OPS round 100. He's one of the best right fielders in baseball defensively. And then right after him is just Yastrzemski because he's still new, even though his total stats over his first two years make him a remarkable player. I just want to see him kind of prove it again, prove it over a real full season altogether in 2021. And for that reason alone, he's just right behind Aaron Judge for me. Yeah, I feel. Yeah, and I mean, I just put Aaron Judge a little bit back. I mean, with Yastrzemski, it was because, I mean, he has had a little more injury trouble. I felt like I saw Yastrzemski play a little more, so I kind of got to see more of the Yastrzemski's power display display now he was able to hit like bombs out there at AT&T Park was some I mean Oracle Park now was something remarkable so but yeah Aaron Judge next ranking after after Aaron Judge I have to give it to Max Kepler I know he's seen a little bit underwhelming with his with his power the past season but like a a season ago some of his stats were some of his stats were were really impressive he had 36 home runs 20 in in 2019 and and he, he was also a his, his war was above four there so I I still want to give Mike Yastrzemski some recognition he could be one of those guys who has more of a bounce back year maybe just had a down year there so I put him at number eight and then my number nine no you didn't have your list but I'm still really liking Charlie Blackman in my opinion Charlie Blackman is still one of the all-around most reliable consistent hitters in the game I'm happy you mentioned Blackman, and I think I kind of wrote him off because of the course field effect at first, but he still has been a two-plus warming player over the past couple of years, even though his defense has eroded and his speed isn't what it once was. He stole about over 300, can still hit 25-plus homers. So even in course field, that still has a lot of weight, and he's certainly a very capable player. I would say he would just be out of my top 10 list along with Will Myers. I think they those two just didn't make the cut, but they're very close. And then for me, for my 8, 9, and 10, I have Whit Merrifield, who has been a pretty solid player, has you know, steal 25 bases or so, projects to be next year as well. And then Joey Gallup right behind him at number 9. I'm a little bit worried about his 20 season and how his strikeout tendencies really caught up to him, and he only batted at 181. But he draws his watts. He's a great fielder. And he has insane power, too. He can definitely be a 40-homer player again. So he, his ceiling is one of the highest on the list, but I just need him to do that over a full season. Then finally for number 10, I have Matt Kepler, who had a down year in 2020, but can still bounce back, still has a lot of talent in his bat. Yeah, so we're pretty much in agreement there. And, yeah, I also put Wilt Miller filled up, his stolen base abilities, hit for – pretty good average over the past several years and he's I mean he's been one of the more I think he he too has been a little a little bit underrated just given that he hasn't really been a big part of a competitor so we have so we have a similar 
list there in terms of in terms of our top ten center fielders, kind of towards the back end there. Yeah, so not too many differences, just more shifting through the order. But we we're pretty much in common agreement, and this is all the time that we have on tonight's show. We covered a lot, and we thank you all for sticking with us. So that is the Yates Podcast.